0: What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Mason Curran, joined, as always, by publisher Chris Cartman. Chris, a lot's been going on in the world of ASU athletics recently. How are you doing?
1: Doing great, man. No, uh, no downtime, right? It seems like every year I've been doing this, the off season gets more and more compacted, and there's a lot more going on, and, and of course, this year's no different.
0: We're spending our offseason obviously providing tons of content uh, besides all the news that is obviously already happening in ASU athletics. Starting first off with ASU basketball, and probably most importantly is the return of Marcus Bagley, which came sort of as a surprise, Chris, at least with the timing. Uh, he announced his intention to pull out of the 2021 NBA draft on July 7th, while kind of emphasizing that he was going to remain in the transfer portal before later that night announcing his return to ASU?
1: Yeah, so the, the timing of the withdrawal was not a surprise in the least bits. Um, you had... The, the deadline was the date that he decided that. But when he announced that he was going into the draft, he thanked ASU fans and, you know, had a sentimental message that went along with it. And that sort of, uh, let, even though we had heard there was a possibility that he could return and we reported that at the time, it, the, there was nothing that indicated to me that that was an overwhelming likelihood uh, or even a strong uh, likelihood. And, and so, um, then when he had the message that you referred to that he was going to, you know, stay in the, the transfer portal, I think that indicated to me that he might still be looking at other opportunities. And normally we sort of get leaked a lot of things and we get wind of it or we, we hear like ahead of time what's probably going to happen. And uh, especially if it's like good news for ASU, you know, coaches or staff members or whoever, administrators or boosters, they'll tip us. And that didn't happen in this case. So, um, I think it was to me unusually a little bit of a surprise that he was returning, but a huge uh, decision uh, as far as like how that benefits ASU's roster, of course. He missed a lot of games last year with the uh, Achilles and ankle injuries. But when he was on the court, especially early on in the season, uh, he was absolutely one of the the team's most important players. He's their fifth highest ranked signee of all time. And um, he really pairs well with the other uh, pieces that they have on the roster. Kamani Lawrence's decision to return for another season as a senior. Uh, And, and then, you know, the addition of Enoch Boache plus Jalen Graham coming back in the front court, that's four really solid front court players. And then they have the three, uh, uh guard transfers in the backcourt. So uh despite how much is new and different in, in, with their basketball roster, I still think that the potential is there for this to, puten- to be a, maybe even a top 25 type of a team.
0: Right, it all depends on how Bobby Hurley is able to kind of get these guys to play cohesive. And together, we obviously saw some struggles with that last season kind of leading to this overhaul. But Marcus Bagley was mocked at several different spots, obviously in in both rounds of the NBA draft, I know he was as high as I think eleven uh, by twenty four seven Sports. But
1: yeah, what... that wasn't a, that wasn't a mock though. That that was a that's one of the sort of that was like a a, a talent ranking. Like there was a big board, and then there's a mock. So the the talent rankings twenty four seven had the highest of that I saw of Bagley, which was yes as high as eleven. But that wasn't a where we think he's going to get drafted sort of a thing which is um not what 24 7 uh was doing at that stage of the process so i think the, the all the mocks that i saw tended to have him somewhere in the 20s to maybe middle of the second round so he was generally considered to be a borderline first round guy maybe maybe a second round guy the the two-way deals uh in, in the nba and the way that's kind of working in recent years um it makes it to where some guys do want to get drafted and some guys don't want to get drafted in the high to mid second rounds. It's, it's sort of a a new era that we've gone into in the last year or two Um, with that. And and I just think clearly what I, my understanding is that going through the process uh, NBA draft combine participation, uh, What sort of the feedback was, the injuries that he had last year, not being able to show what he could do on a consistent basis, that there was a feeling like he could be able to pretty clearly help his draft stock uh, if he returned to college for another year.
0: Right, and you mentioned uh, the two-way deals and things of that nature with second-round picks. We saw that play out with Lugens Dort, who decided to go undrafted and obviously now is playing a, a pretty crucial role with the Oklahoma City Thunder. But now that Marcus Bagley is back officially, the uh, and he announced it, obviously the, the team accounts have announced it, how does the roster kind of stack up in terms of a potential rotation? Because it is so many new faces uh, and so much seemingly depth in the program now.
1: Yeah. So the only two guys who played last year for the team who are likely to be in the top, you know, eight or nine rotation are Kamani Lawrence and Marcus Bagley, which is crazy. I've never been, I've never covered a a team that had nine or 10 new scholarship players. um, You know, many of whom are going to be the key players. And that's just a, if Don't function- discount
0: Jalen Graham though, Chris.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, and Jalen Graham. Sorry, Jalen Graham. Is, so there's three, right? My bad, totally my mistake. So Jalen Graham, and Kamani Lawrence, and uh, J- and uh, and Marcus Bagley, right? So three guys coming back, and the rest of the team get 13 scholarship players. They have they have they have 13 on scholarship. Kamani Lawrence doesn't count against the cap. Because he's a super senior. So they actually could still add one more. They're probably not gonna add one more though, because uh it's I think it's just too late in the in the year that anybody that they would add um would be somebody that you know is not gonna be able to help them this year, probably. So my sort of understanding is they're probably gonna hold pat unless they unless somebody they stumble upon. So um, three returning players, as you correct, correctly, uh, um, made clear the rest of them are all newcomers. Um, and so the rotation is those three guys plus Enoch Bawachi, the five-star Canadian center, um, in the front court. And if anybody else maybe is a possibility to play in the front court, I would say, um, it could be Alonzo Gaffney who's a junior college transfer who was also highly regarded uh, coming out of high school. When he went to Ohio state that he was number 50 uh, overall prospect in the 2019 class, didn't make it there, dropped down a level. He's a long and athletic kid, six, 200 pounds, rim runner plays above, above the rim rebounds, um, you know, out of his area. And, you know, I, I, I think, To have a guy like that be maybe your fifth option in the front court uh, is that's a pretty impressive thing. I mean, Jalen Graham wasn't really pushed last year after the departure of Romello White, which I think led to, um, you know, maybe some complacency or just something wasn't right about him early on in the season. He had a lot of the the, uh, foul troubles and remember like when he was out of the lineup with the foul troubles. And then when he had mono late, you know, like December, or January, that proved to be really limiting for ASU. So I don't think they're going to really have those problems. The competition's going to be really great. They can play big. They can play small. You can go with, um, you know, Bawachi, Gaffney, uh, Graham at the five, you can go small and play Kamaya Lawrence or Marcus Bagley at the five, something they did last year on occasion, I just think when you look at their interior length, athleticism, rebounding, depth and toughness, this is, this projects to be Bobby Hurley's best team in the front court. And then if you look over to the back court, definitely, you know, r- losing Remy Martin is a, is a, a major thing. Uh, Josh Christopher, you know, was the, the, he and, and uh, James Harden, the two highest rated guards in recent decades uh, also, you know, sticking in the NBA draft, uh, and then they lose uh, Alonzo Verge, who decided to transfer to Nebraska. I don't, I don't think that they're going to be as hurt in the backcourt by these departures as fans might think. And partly that's because the ball dominance of those three guards was so great that they didn't really all mesh together in a way that allowed them to play seamlessly. In particular, after the quarantine and then not having a lot of practice time to get on the same page and then in, even during the season, how limited that they were. I think that caused a lot of challenges for them um, with guys getting on the same page. And, and then defensively, it, it was just bad. There's no other way to put it. Like Verge is not a good defender. Remy Martin, is a, he's a transition defender and he's somebody who is an opportunist but he's not a good lockdown individual guy. And um, there was just a lot of lapses, I think. And then Josh Christopher, I think he could be a good defender, but he wasn't uh, last year. And Luther Mohammed was on the team last year, so he's not new technically, but he had to sit out post-transfer from Ohio State. He was right. the he's probably their best guard defensively. who was on the roster last year you know certainly looks better than any of the guards who played last year and then when you add marion jackson who was the mac player of the year and jay heath who was a number 10 scorer in the acc at boston college uh that's that's pretty impressive to me like I, I think that they have a lot of college experience they're veteran guys yeah jackson played at a lower level but they're the the that's still a pretty good mid-major conference, and there's not as bu- big of a gap between the levels of college basketball as there used to be. And then D.J. Horn is another guard that they added who was a leading scorer at Illinois State last year uh, around 15 points per game. So I, I think it's going to be a lot of competition to start. Muhammad, I think, will be out there. Um, I think between you know, Jay Heath, Marion Jackson, DJ Horn, you're pro- you're going to get one starter. Uh, I I'm sort of guessing Marion Jackson, but it could be Heath. I think those three guys, Mohammed Heath and Jackson are going to get a majority of the minutes in the backcourt Their ASU could play, as we said, bigger lineup, meaning Marcus Bagley kicks down to small forward. And then you only have two of these guards or, That hasn't been Bobby Hurley's natural inclination, but also he hasn't had a roster that was built to maybe play a lot bigger. So they could sometimes play with three guards, Mohammed being a a, a, 6'3", 6'4", a guy at the three position with Heath and Jackson or maybe Horn. Um, So there's, you know, between these eight guys, the, the four mentioned in the front court, between the three returning and Bawachi as a newcomer, and then these other four guards, and it's a pretty good eight-man rotation, um, you know, with one or two sort of maybe sleeper guys that could come up and garner some type of minutes. Gaffney is the guy who makes a lot of sense. They also have several other freshmen who are newcomers, uh, Damari Williams, Justin Rochlin, uh, Jemaya Neal, and Will Felton. Um, but I, it's, I think it's going to be hard for any of those guys to, to crack uh, the main rotation. And none of them were ranked highly. Like none of them were top 100 prospects in the class, which is part of the reason why I'm saying that. It, the, it's a remarkably sort of veteran roster um, out, despite it not being a roster that has a lot of ASU-specific experience. Uh, And so I think only Bawache among, I think, five freshmen is a guy who probably will play a big role.
0: Right, and that's obviously a lot of new faces playing in Tempe this year. As we look at the guys who left, just kind of quickly want to go over the fact that all of the transfers out of ASU did find new places to play. Alonzo Verge transfers to Nebraska. Remy Martin, as we touched on, going to Kansas. Caleb Christopher ended up at Tennessee Tech. Holland Woods and Tayshawn Cherry at Grand Canyon. Pablo Zuba is at Maryland. And Chris Austin followed Rashawn Burno to Northern Illinois Jalen house also ending up at new Mexico. And then the walk on Kyle fight went Juco in terms though of Chris, the kind of expectations for this season and the potential and prospects, obviously last year, ASU was kind of hyped to be this team that could potentially win the PAC 12. What are kind of the prognostications for this year with this roster?
1: Well, UCLA, UCLA looks like a uh, national championship contender again. Um, Oregon is exceptionally well coached and they always have a ability to sort of reload their Play roster. Maybe he's, he's great. And I would say USC is and Arizona maybe are the next two in terms of what's going to happen with a lot of the preseason predictions. So ASU won't be, I don't think, among the top four. They maybe could push USC or Arizona in in the minds of some. More likely, ASU will be viewed as like a fifth or sixth type of a team. They've kind of done better when that's been the case. I don't know if, if there's a reason for that or if that would, you know, bears itself out or not again this year. But even if you are fifth or sixth, that's still a team that, shapes up to have potential to be an NCAA tournament, a team, the potential to have a winning record in the PAC 12. Um, so yeah, it's, it's difficult to prognosticate because we haven't seen a lot of these guards. That's the main thing. It's like, to me, how good really are Luther Mohammed, Marion Jackson, you know, uh, gonna be jay heath how, how how good are they gonna be if uh, you know if the drop off is not much or maybe even they're not it's not any drop off then they could be better and i look at again too many ball dominant guys in the last team marion jackson is a super heavy volume shooter i think he took more threes than anybody in, in simple a over the last two years combined uh jay heath has been a, a volume scorer so, uh, you know, not to say that that can't be some issue, but Luther Mohammed very much of a two-way player and all these guys can score at three levels. And I think that they're a tougher, more physical group. So they, like Bobby Hurley had the whole thing after the season about wanting to find guys he'd go to war with moving forward. I, you know, if I walked out to the park and I saw Martin, Verge, Christopher, and then I saw, uh, Heath and Mohammed and Jackson. I think that I think I might lean more toward the second group, um, just in terms of their bigger, you know, well put together men. And, um, the way that they play, there's a grittiness, I think, to the way that they play that wasn't really there a lot. Um, last year with ASU. So I think they could end up surprising some people but as you said earlier Mason the most important thing of all is is Bobby Hurley going to be able to get the most out of his talent and there that has not been the case at times. So um you know he did a great job I think t- getting the talent is the most important sort of part of college basketball you don't really have a chance without pretty good talent he's consistently put together rosters that have been better than any of his recent predecessors like any of them going back to like maybe uh early in the middle of bill freeder in the 1990s so you know we're talking about 25 going on almost 30 years ago so that's really impressive and now let's see what you're going to be able to do with it it's going to be a challenge because again when you, anytime you have nine new guys coming in, um, there's a lot of moving parts.
0: Right. And wrapping up our basketball discussion, it won't just be Bobby Hurley – you know, coaching new players, but it's going to be cohesion with a new staff as well because they get Joel justice. They get Jermaine Kimbrough and his other top assistants have obviously, as we we've talked about before uh, they've left and what ASU hasn't yet announced yet, but as we've reported, Chris, the coach of Enoch Boach ASU's five-star center enrollee is expected to join ASU staff in the coming weeks.
1: You're right. George Armide is, um, He was the coach at George Harris Prep, which is in Ontario, Canada. Uh, He's been uh, a mentor of Boache for some years now. And we heard at the time of ASU getting Boache's commitment that this is probably going to happen. And I don't think that I've covered uh, a, a staff that entirely turned around in in, um, one year, especially when you look, when you consider that Eric Brown, who was an assistant and then in an operations role, also left to New Mexico. It's like ASU's top four assistants, including the right-hand man to Bobby Hurley, Rashawn Bruno, uh, who took a head coaching job. All, they're all gone. And so that is another big sort of challenge that overlays this whole situation that Bobby Hurley is dealing with. He has to not only assimilate this roster, but also with staff um he has largely been the the um the schematic sort of architect of what they have done especially offensively there's been a little bit there was a little bit more that bruno did from a defensive standpoint i don't think they're going to really change um you know styles or anything or uh, scheme on that side of the ball i think they're probably going to be mostly what they have been uh i And I don't think any of these new assistant coaches were brought in because of their X's and O's acumen or how they may uh, impact the team from any sort of schematic changes. Now, Joel justice coming from Kentucky, very high level uh, understanding of recruiting and playing for John Calipari, who famous for the dribble drive offense that um, I think in a lot of ways, you know, was a foundational style that a lot of other teams have, have uh, incorporated uh, over the years and even has impacted the NBA level. Um, that sort of meshes reasonably well. It's like a close cousin maybe of what Bobby Hurley has, has been trying to do. So you know, there's gonna be some ability to have conversations about that with Justice and Hurley as far as like some of the things that they have done at Kentucky. Uh, in in recent years, and I'm interested to see if that has any impact on Hurley. Um, And and also, though, you need really talented players to to give that sort of a free-form offensive style, and I think Hurley's tendency has been to want to do that with his players, but not have guys who have always been able to execute that and play together. So that's something that is worth watching as well uh, heading into this year.
0: Right, and we'll have, obviously, more coverage of ASU basketball leading up to the season and and with more updates on the site at Sun Devil Source, so make sure you keep up with our continuing coverage there. I want to transition now, Chris, to ASU baseball. Most uh, recently, obviously, as we're recording this on Monday, July 12th, the ongoing MLB draft is happening. It's obviously a, a key early phase of the roster building under new coach, Willie Bloomquist and one of ASU's commits has already been drafted as we're recording this pretty recently as, as such.
1: Yeah. West Cath, He's um, uh, the top ranked uh, prospect in Arizona at a desert mountain in Scottsdale. Uh, he's a, you know, can play middle infield, maybe third base at ASU if he ends up enrolling Uh, He was taken by the White Sox, 57th overall. And that's, you know, that's a place where it really can go either way in terms of, you know, if a guy really wants to uh, try to push up into that high first round possibility, which ASU's had some guys be able to do that in the last couple of years, of course. Torkelson going number number one overall, Hunter Bishop before that. Um, You know, it's, you know, and, and, you know, this is a 6,3, 200 pound guy. So he's big. Um, you know, he's, you know, he, he's not just powerful, but he's got a good arm. there's a lot of sort of, um, signs of his ability to maybe even improve a stock, but I don't have any inside knowledge about whether he would leave or not. He's he's the number one guy that we're watching. The other, the next guy among their signees is Will Rogers. Um, who's a catcher out of Minnesota um you know asu only has one returning scholarship uh catcher on its roster it's been it's been a little bit of an issue um in the last couple years and so he is expected to to really solidify maybe even have a chance to push a first starting job uh behind the plate for asu so we'll see where he ends up getting drafted it's 20 round draft this year um i think he's he's forecast to go somewhere in the middle of that uh process course, whether guys get drafted or not also sort of depends on the likelihood of them signing. And I'm not really sure about that. And then you have some um, uh, other returning players who are probably moving on. Drew Swift uh, primarily uh, should get drafted by tomorrow as we're recording this, which would be Tuesday. Um, you know, he's an excellent uh, middle infielder can play second or short in the major league level. And, um, you know, there's been some questions about his bat, his contact hitter, but I, I, you know, he's, he's done pretty well overall. I would say, I think that this last year, I think he answered some of those questions about him. So he he's, you know, moving on the biggest question as far as like from a roster building standpoint with returning players really is more about their, uh, their pitching situation. You know, they have, you know, Tyler, Tyler Thornton. Uh, Boyd Vandercoy, Eric Tolman, where do these guys get drafted? You know, three of these guys had had Tommy John surgery. So there's a, a really uh, high chance that sort of, you know, um, hampers their draft stock because people don't know exactly where they're at in their process, even though it's a very common injury in baseball. The, the sort of tea leaves indicate that these guys are more likely to return next season, but we just can't bank on as automatically being the case
0: right and that's one of the more important elements to this whole process i mean like you mentioned chris if guys get drafted it's not an automatic given that they do sign uh and sun devil source reporter jacob Rudner did a full-scale breakdown of all of asu's Draftable prospects, and that's on the site at sendevelsource.com. So go take a look at that for a more in depth breakdown. Also, relating to ASU baseball, Chris, Willie bloomquist staff has been filled out. We know uh, the the two originally we reported Mike Goff and Bill Mueller, and then ASU baseball also just hired Sam Peraza as its pitching coach, who was last at San Diego State.
1: Yeah, and Peraza's a big addition because um, the staff has basically no college experience coaching-wise. And um, Jason Kelly, the previous pitching coach, was the only guy who had that. Um, He parted ways with ASU and ended up taking the pitching job at LSU. And so I think it was clear that Bloomquist wanted to identify somebody who has that sort of structural understanding of recruiting and also west coast sort of talents which is um peraza being from san diego state the last five years he was their associate head coach the last two years he has a very deep sort of understanding of uh the high school sort of landscape in the west and all of the sort of recruiting challenges related to scholarships percentages and how to sort of work within the what can be a pretty complex sort of structure and, um, you know, some creative ways that you can build out your roster. So I think that's going to be a big advantage. Um, you know, San Diego state has clearly been the best or one of the two best teams in the mountain West in recent years. Uh, They're NCAA tournament team, 2017, 2018. Um, their pitching has been probably, their strength. They led the Mountain West in ERA 2017, 2018, 2020. And so, you know, they they should be able to recruit at an even higher level uh, at ASU than San Diego State um, with their pitching. So I think what Bloomquist is doing, my analysis of it is he's sort of, um, you know, they feel like, I'm sure, that between uh, Goff and a guy who was a former MLB hitting coach, uh, Bill Mueller, and then and then himself, Bloomquist, playing in the major leagues for a long time. Um, they have the hitting and fielding part really covered in terms of how they can sell to recruiting. And Peraz is somebody who has the ability to sell the pitching part to prospects and from a developmental standpoint, and then uh, the recruiting acumen to go with it. So... Um, you no, know, they they only get two salaried assistants. That's you know Goff and Paraza. Mueller is a unsalaried, but still a pretty important guy as a quote unquote volunteer hitting coach. And anybody else that they add will just be in a in a sort of a uh, administrative support type of a role, not a uh, on field coaching position or recruiting.
0: Right. And obviously, as the MLB draft keeps progressing in the coming days, we'll have full coverage of that on the site at SunDevilSource.com. So make sure you're staying in touch with us as that continues. But on to ASU football, Chris, the NCAA investigation still ongoing, and it's going to be for the foreseeable future. For those who maybe don't think we've talked about it or covered it, in depth, as much as you'd like. Well, we had a one hour long premium podcast on the very subject uh, a week ago or so. Uh, and we've really been giving a lot of our full perspective and Chris's full kind of breakdown and analysis to our subscriber base. So make sure you get in the Devil's sanctuary. But Chris, we do want to go over kind of the, the basics of what, where we are right now. So in terms of the current stage of this process, what's been alleged and where are we in the, the kind of process at this point?
1: Right, so um, someone who either worked or works at ASU anonym- anonymously sent in some um, a- alleged evidence, is the best way to put it, to ASU compliance uh, that um, sparked ASU alerting the NCAA to this compliance issue, um, which now has led to the NCAA essentially uh, looking into the matter. There's a three-stage process with the NCAA. There's like, you know, uh, areas within each stage, of course, but it really is a notice of inquiry, which is based upon a a sort of an initial uh, look at the matter and conversations with employees. And former employees and, and others? Um, you know, is there enough uh, to proceed with an investigation? That is happening right now. There is gonna be a notice of inquiry. If it hasn't already been received by ASU, um, that process can take uh, a number of months, if not in a year or longer before you get to a notice of allegations. Notice of allegations is, is essentially um, it's alerting the school that there, um, that the investigation has led to these concretely sort of established, uh, allegations and the school has the ability to, um, basically respond to that in writing. They can also ask for an extension in order to respond, um, they can work with the NCAA on, on, on the matter. Uh, it's like a negotiated resolution sort of a phase and, um, or not. And then there is a the committee on infractions, which is basically the final stage, which is where you get to whatever sort of penalties um, are determined and levied uh, by the the NCAA uh, Committee on Infractions. Uh, So we're very early in this process. Schools can take their own action if they deem it appropriate, meaning uh, if they find that there is cause to uh, dismiss staff members, for example, they can do that at any point in time. I don't anticipate from what I've heard that anything like that would happen until you get closer to the notice of allegations phase, which again, probably will not happen this whole year. Uh, So that's why this is gonna be a much longer process. The NCAA is gonna talk with a bunch of coaches and staff members at ASU, people who used to work at ASU, also could talk to recruits. Um, These allegations, of course, center around impermissible visiting with recruits while on ASU's campus or even off ASU's campus during the 14 plus month period in which it was not allowed due to COVID-19. Um, it's called a dead period. And essentially what it means is, even though there's allowed to have digital correspondence, you know, texts, even calls at some points in time, depending on the, um, the age of the recruit, there can't be in-person Interactions, um, And it has been alleged that ASU hosted impermissibly um, dozens of, of recruits, um, not saying that there's evidence to support that. That's what's to be determined as part of this process. And then there are additional um, aggravating allegations that are the most serious, really probably, which are that ASU paid for recruits to make these trips during the period of time when it was not allowed. And um, that, those allegations primarily center around um, three younger ASU assistant coaches, um, Prentice Gill, Chris Hawkins, and Adam Bredeman, the latter two of whom were the youngest two coaches in the Pac-12 last last year. So um, it's been reported elsewhere, The Athletic, uh, Yahoo Sports, um, that, you know, that people who are, you know, have worked for ASU, or worked for ASU, um, you know, have basically said that these sorts of wrongdoings took place. And ASU has not defended itself um, in any sort of a public manner. They've declined comments. Um, they are participating through this compliance NCAA investigation process, which is now going to unfold And I don't anticipate any really big developments uh, between now and when we get to that notice of allegation stage. So a lot of people have asked how this might impact the team this year. And I think I think it's a distraction. It's a, mental distraction. And it's a, uh, something that's gonna take these coaches and maybe even others, um, their time and their energy um, being a little bit more divided away from what they normally would be focused on. And that's, that can have an oblique sort of an impact on the team, but I don't anticipate the players are gonna be really impacted by this whatsoever. And so as a result, I I think that any impact to ASU's actual performance, it seems like it would be probably pretty minor this year.
0: And we've discussed at length, at least in the premium podcast, Chris, the potential ramifications and consequences of this when it does get to the, the end and the conclusion, which again, could be in some time. So quickly, just going over again the NCAA violation structure and levels. Uh, it starts with the level 4 penalties which really are, are not insignificant, but they're not they're more warning based. Uh, then you move up to level three incidents which are breaches of con- uh, breaches of conduct, excuse me, and those are violations that are isolated. they don't provide more than a minimal advantage and things of that nature. Then you get more serious with the level one and level two violations, the level two being a significant breach of conduct, um, they, these do And are intended to provide more than a minimal but less than a substantial advantage and these can include a failure to monitor other systemic violations and and recruiting infractions things of that nature. And then level one violations being the severe blatant breach of conduct. um, Which can include lack of institutional control academic misconduct, a, a bunch of factors leading into a level one violation, but what do the allegations against ASU lead the potential penalties to be?
1: Right. So it's somewhat subjective and um, depends in part on how pervasive and how organized any of this wrongdoing is, alleged wrongdoing. So, you know, it's definitely not level four. It's not level three if it's widespread, you know, like if a bunch of kids were coming on campus and meeting with coaches during a period in which everybody knew that it was not allowed, that, you know, is more like a level two violation. And then if, you know, it, it, it's more than a minimal but less than a substantial recruiting or competitive advantage, if you're doing that. And uh, as, I, as I believe the NCAA would view it and based upon um, the history, like, there, there have been some cases in which some of these have been viewed as level three. For instance, uh, at, at Florida, they had a bunch of kids who were part of a seven-on-seven team that visited their school during a period in which it was allowed to be visiting the school, but you actually have to be uh, traveling for a scholastic team in order to take part in a campus visit during, in that kind of a way. When the when the trip is not um individually you know, t- you know uh, paid for so um that led to level three this is a little more serious than that i think as it would be perceived based upon the allegations so we're, we're dealing with the possibility of a lot of level twos with just the visiting and then what would potentially kick that up to level one status would be if uh, asu any asu coaches or staff members were found to have paid for the travel of recruits to their campus and then they hosted them when they were not allowed to, to do so. That would be, especially if it wasn't a very isolated case. Like if, if maybe that was happened once or something like that, uh, you might be able to say, okay, that's a level two. But if that it actually took place uh, more, more widespread, that's where you get into the, um, you know, level one sort of a territory. So these are very serious uh, allegations. This case is a serious matter. It's not one of these more minimal types of, of things in terms of ASU's exposure. And it's very rare that you have somebody who used to work for the program or works for the program who sent a bunch of um, material to compliance or the NCAA uh, in an effort to sort of substantiate some of the allegations that the, that person has made. Um, and now we're into this sort of a key part of this process where a lot of the individual coaches and staff members who were alleged to have been doing some of these things are going to have some difficult decisions to make, I think, because um the any penalties that a school, uh, athletic department or a football program take on uh, as a result of the Committee on Infractions ruling, u- the ultimate final judgment, those confer to the coaches who get show cause penalties. And what that means essentially is that any other school that would try to hire or, or want, wish to hire, Coaches who have the show cause penalty have to make a case to the NCAA as to why they shouldn't also incur the remaining penalties that the school where they came from is, uh, is uh, dealing with. So um, a lot of uh, coaches uh, are advised by their lawyers. And I'm sure that a lot of these coaches are getting lawyers and they're getting uh, a lot of, you know people who have experience in these matters explaining a lot of this stuff to them there's a high possibility i would say almost likely that some of these coaches are talking about how they could limit their own exposure to show cause penalties if they did participate in anything that could be perceived as level one to level two violations so if you did some of this stuff, okay, theoretically, and you still want to work in college football and you want to be able to have that employment somewhere else as quickly as possible, you may want to sort of comply with NCAA investigators, admit what you did was wrong, and that could limit a lesson, I should say, the show cause punishment for the school and maybe even the coaches so uh, now there could be some coaches who even did something wrong who decide they don't want to go that 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 route and they don't want to um uh participate in you know sitting down with interviews and uh talking about some of the things that they did and that's a that's a A strategy that also comes with some level of risk because we don't know and they even these coaches or staff members may not know what was provided to the ncaa and what other people meaning uh, colleagues or recruits might say to corroborate the the initial allegations so uh and keep in mind that any recruits who received impermissible benefits, the NCAA could go to them and threaten their eligibility if they don't acknowledge what happened and maybe even uh, pay restitution uh, of some kind. I'm not sure about that last part of it, but um, you know, cause they're not allowed to receive impermissible, ben- impermissible benefits without that impacting their eligibility. So there's a lot of parts to this and All of that is what's going to take shape uh, over, I would say, a number of months, maybe even a year or longer before you get to a notice of allegations phase. But all of this is going to sort of loom over the program and be something that sucks uh, energy and time away from where they want to prioritize it into some of these other areas where they don't want to be.
0: And that's a significant point. Obviously, the coaches, uh, at least in the summer, have been on vacation, and it's a dead period anyway right now in recruiting, um, in terms of visits. Not a a COVID-related dead period, just in the normal recruiting calendar. But camp, preseason camp, is about uh, less than four weeks away at this point. Should start the first week of August. It hasn't been officially announced yet by ASU, but it should start the first week of August. So you know, with these important Uh, dates coming up and then ahead of the the season with these things looming that's a very significant you know distraction as you put it Chris and in terms of this year's preseason camp last year with COVID and everything there was no Camp Taunizona there's not going to be Camp Taunizona again this year but what is our kind of coverage scope beginning to look like?
1: Yeah so um, we've been rolling out player capsules which is basically you know, analysis and what uh, position coaches say about and the stats to this point of all ASU's players on the roster, doing that on a, on a position by position basis, just finish the defensive line. So it's like 15 guys or, or so. And, um, and then we grade every player in each group based upon their current readiness and based upon their potential. So, and that's, you know, 70-something guys returning on on the roster. I guess it's around 70. Plus, uh, we also, you know, have, uh, you know, evaluations of all the newcomers that are coming. And we do that a little bit differently. But um, that leads us into position previews for every position on the roster that we do uh, uh, to prepare everybody for camp. Those will start to be published at the end of next week there's I think nine of them. So it'll be like three a week for a three week period. Um, so a ton of stuff, it's like a library of content really when you look into, you know, uh, every position and then every player and then every, um, every grading everyone on the roster. And so, uh, there's I'm confident that there's nobody else doing anything like it. Um, if you're really serious about ASU's team this year, which a lot of fans are um, we posted something on our board actually about that, which is that 91% of 2019 season ticket holders have renewed uh, already and new season ticket sales have eclipsed um, what they were in, in recent years to the point that ASU actually is, has the healthiest overall um improvement in its season ticket sales uh of any team in the pac-12 according to sources that i spoke with uh on the subject so uh there's a a ton of interest i think it's justified again we've said in the past and we're going to have a season preview podcast coming up in the next couple weeks but you know this is a team that should win nine or more games and um, anything less than a PAC 12 self championship is not going to be viewed as a successful season by the coaching staff or, or by us.
0: Right. And I do want to mention in each of the player capsule articles that we're putting up on the site, there's also an individualized player capsule video that Chris and I filmed for every scholarship player on the roster. So make sure you're watching all of those that are included in the stories. And our next free podcast will also include a camp preview and also set expectations for, like Chris said, what is shaping up to be ASU's highest potential season, at least under Herm Edwards. And if you do have any specific questions about the NCAA investigation or just the team in general, or if you just want a better understanding of the roster to a T and at the most detailed level, level, excuse me, make sure you subscribe to the site. But before we wrap this thing up, Chris, do you have any final thoughts?
1: No, just looking forward to getting this thing going and um, we'll be in LA for Pac-12 Media Day on July 27th. From Edwards, probably Jane Daniels and Chase Lucas. If I had to guess, would be the players who join him. Um, there'll be a ton of coverage on the site. Like you know, like 2019, we average over 50 pieces of content on a weekly basis uh, from the start of camp all the way through the end of the season. Uh, a good bit of that is free, I think, as people know, but the, uh, a lot of the better analysis stuff is VIP. And um, if you're going to join, this is this is the, this is really a great year to do it.
0: And not only just the content, but also the interaction in the message board. It's the most active uh, message board for ASU fans by in- far.
1: Hundreds, uh, hundreds of daily, of daily posts uh, during the season. Um, I, I not just writing a bunch of stories and everything that we put out, the video and photo and everything else. But I probably average fifteen to twenty posts. A lot of those are answering questions and giving people better sort of perspective. First person base. I mean. I, I, I until last year, uh, because of the pandemic and they had no access. I don't think I missed uh, camp practice uh, in, in the previous 15 years. So, very much looking forward to being out there, having a normal type of year, at least as normal as we possibly can. Be meeting with all of, with, with all, you know all of our staff members and uh, interacting with all the fans in the Devil's Sanctuary. It's an exciting time here.
0: Well, that's going to wrap up this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. For publisher Chris Cartman, I'm your host, Mason Kern, saying so long. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.